0: Welcome back to Story Glider's Stories of COVID-19. This is part one of episode four on the theme of decisions. I don't know about you, but for me, decision-making has never been more stressful than it has for the past nine months. Suddenly, the stakes are so high for every little thing, even when it's just whether or not to leave the house. And I, for one, don't feel I've been prepared for this. Let's just say when I went into the storytelling business 10 years ago, I never thought I would have to make pandemic-related decisions. <laughs> right now, it's sometimes so hard to know what the right thing to do is. Sometimes there is no right thing to do, or at least no option that doesn't make you feel bad in some way. A lot of us made hard decisions last week when it came to our Thanksgiving plans. I had to cancel on Mama Barker and... <laughs> She informed me that she'll probably be dead by next Thanksgiving, so even though I think it was the right decision, I still don't feel great about it. And we have a lot of hard decisions ahead of us before this is over. In part one of this episode, we'll have our first story about this, and then we'll talk to Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, an expert in decision-making, about how we're navigating this time. Our first story is from labor and delivery nurse Amelia Reeves. It was recorded in her walk-in closet in her home in New Orleans.
1: On this particular day, I'm finishing up a C-section, which is going to allow me to be open to take the next available patient that comes up to the unit. I'm a labor and delivery nurse in New Orleans, and it's early April. New Orleans was hit incredibly hard in the beginning with this virus. Mardi Gras had just happened my absolute favorite weeks of the year, had just come to a close when the pandemic hit the city. I'd gone from dancing in the street with thousands of costumed people to, you know, being completely alone and quarantined off from anyone and everyone. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows within a matter of weeks. Work is kind of a double-edged sword for me. I'm single, I live alone, uh, my family's out of state, so on one hand, coming to work means that I get to be around and interact with people. But on the other hand, work is also just a giant ball of anxiety and stress. The fear of the unknown and the anticipation of not of if we get a positive patient, but rather when we get a positive patient, was absolutely taking a toll on me and my coworkers. Overall, my personality is to try not to take things too seriously and, you know, try to find the humor in most situations. So I was trying my best to keep things light at work. We created a room where we could labor or where we would labor, most of our positive moms, and I dubbed it as the COVID cabana. I jokingly told my coworkers that we should create a COVID playlist uh, for the room, which would obviously include the sweet sounds of Barry Manilow's Copa Cabana as these beautiful babies entered the world. I put a sign on the room that said COVID Cabana in those early weeks, and six months later, it's still there. I try my best to keep this positive attitude with my patients because I know that they are so afraid right now. But admittedly, some days are definitely harder than others. Like I said, on this particular day, I was open to take the next patient, and the ER calls. They tell us that they have a patient down in the ER who's about 20 weeks pregnant. She's complaining of some abdominal pain. They tell us that she's never been to this hospital before, doesn't see a doctor here, um, and that her husband's down there with her. I jot down a quick report, and then I tell them that they can bring her up, but her husband has to stay down in the ER. In the early days of COVID, our hospital, like many hospitals, had created a protocol um, concerning support persons at the bedside, and we were only allowing a support person up with our patients when they were in active labor. So any of our patients that you know were coming up and we were just triaging, trying to figure out what was going on, or our overnight stays, um, 24-hour stays, they had to come up alone and could have no one with them. It was just if you were deemed to be an active labor, could you have your support person with them? And with that, the support person had to stay in the, on the hospital grounds for the whole um, three to four-night stay. So we were telling these You know, these partners that pack your snacks, pack your bags, because you can't leave the hospital once you come in. The ER brings this patient up in a wheelchair, and she's crying. You know, she's writhing back and forth in the wheelchair, so I quickly get her to a triage room. I'm helping her out of the wheelchair, and she can barely walk on her own. So I help her get undressed, and I notice a fair amount of blood. As a labor and delivery nurse, I feel like a lot of my interactions with patients is spent assuring them that, you know, everything they're feeling and experiencing is normal. Especially moms being pregnant and having babies, so much of the laboring process is unknown. So I spend a lot of time putting their minds at ease. But in the times when what they are experiencing isn't normal, and I can tell that mother and or baby's health is threatened, fear sets in my body. My adrenaline kicks in. And when I see the blood, along with my patient's other symptoms, I get nervous. I get nervous for her. Nervous for her baby. Nervous that I won't make moves quick enough and will forget something. But as nervous and as scared as I am, I'm not going to let her see that. You know, I have to stay calm for her. I have to stay calm, you know, stay in control for her. I immediately call in for more help and we get a doctor to the bedside. He confirms that she's about to deliver her baby, so I call out to get her husband up to the bedside as quickly as possible. As we're all running around, I'm trying to explain to the patient what's going on, but she's crying, she's in so much pain, you know, she's not in the right state of mind to understand what I'm telling her. And to top it all off, you know, I'm trying to talk with her with a mask on. Due to COVID, all staff are required to wear, you know, for a full shift, full 12-hour shift masks And here's this patient who's never been to this hospital before, completely alone, delivering her baby 20 weeks early, and all she sees are a bunch of our eyes. It's such an intimate experience, and all she sees were a bunch of strangers' eyes. Unfortunately, within a matter of minutes, she delivers her baby. And due to the prematurity, the baby does not survive. The doctor hands me the baby, and I wrap the baby in a blanket and put the baby on her chest, skin to skin. You know, she's crying, and I'm trying to explain to her that she did everything she could. You know, nothing she did made this happen. I just keep telling her that I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And as I'm talking to her, her husband comes into the room. He didn't make it in time. Everything happened so quickly, and we couldn't get him up to the room in time. He sees his wife and his baby, and I start to explain to him what has happened, and he just starts crying. I just think about how traumatic this is for him. You know, he had to leave his wife down in the ER, seeing and knowing that she was in so much pain. You know, knowing something was wrong. And now he walks into the room to see that she's delivered their baby. You know, 15 minutes ago she was pregnant, and now she's no longer pregnant, and their baby did not survive. I again try to explain to him, you know, what I was telling her, you know, that there was nothing they could have done to stop this. They came to the hospital as soon as this pain started for her. I just keep telling them how sorry I am. But I struggle because, you know, that doesn't seem like enough. I feel like nothing I say is going to help the situation. I mean, they just lost their child. And as he's holding his wife, her husband looks up to me, And he asks if his mother can come to the bedside and be with them. And I had to stand there and tell them that no, they couldn't grieve together because due to COVID, he was the only person up allowed at the bedside with her and they couldn't swap out at any point during their stay. You know, how unfair. Pre-COVID, this patient would have been allowed as many visitors as she wanted at any hour of the day. And here I am having to tell them that they can't grieve together as a family. You know, I felt like I was taking something away from them. It didn't seem fair. Before giving the two of them some time together with their baby, I help her get cleaned up. I change her sheets. I give her a new gown. And I realize that they don't have any of their belongings with them. You know, they came so quickly, not knowing what was happening, so they didn't have anything packed for an overnight stay. And I know he's not allowed to leave the hospital, according to our new COVID policy. But I just start to think, like, if there's any comfort from having her own belongings for the night, if that gave her any sort of comfort on what is probably one of the worst days of her life, if I could give her that, I would want to. You know, but I start thinking, what if I let him out to go get the bag and then they don't let him back into the hospital because he's already been here and now she has to spend the night completely alone after having delivered her premature baby? What if I get in trouble for letting him leave in the first place? You know, what if he leaves and comes into contact with COVID out in the world in between, you know, leaving the hospital and coming back and then comes and spreads it? Does it even matter that they have their belongings? Like, do they even care to have them? They literally just lost their child. But eventually, you know, I I just, if this was me, I would want this opportunity. So I go ahead and I decide to take the chance and just ask them if grabbing some items from home would be of any comfort. And they both agree that that would be something that they would like. So I start to tell him that you know, there's two entrances to the hospital, and they came in through the ER. So I tell him he's going to go back out through the ER and not say anything to anyone. Go home, pack his bag. And then when he comes back, he's going to come in through the front entrance where there's a front check-in desk. They'll check his temperature, and they'll, you know, he'll tell them that his wife's upstairs in labor, and they'll call up to us, and we'll let him in. So he agrees. I take his temperature before he left because I knew that, you know, that's the one thing I can kind of control in this situation is, is you know, they weren't going to let him back in if he had a fever. So he was good to go. Um, he left later that afternoon and we got a call um, kind of before shift change and he, you know, we let him in. He got back in no problem. At the end of the shift, when I go down to her room to say goodbye, she's still holding her baby but I noticed that she's changed from the hospital gown into her own PJs. And I think to myself, you know, that bending the rules was definitely worth it. I come into work the next day, and I take back this patient, and there are plans for her to be discharged. I get all her paperwork together, and I go in the room to go over everything. After going over the instructions, she stands up, and at first I hesitate. I'm thinking, I can't hug her. You know, I can't get too close. What if I'm asymptomatic? What if she's asymptomatic? But in a split second, I was like, screw it. And I just embraced her. And we hugged. And she immediately started to cry, and then I started to cry. And we just held each other. And as she cried, I started to feel guilty. You know, I should have hugged her yesterday. I should have hugged her yesterday when I couldn't find the words to lessen her loss. I should have held her yesterday when she was alone before her husband got up to the room. But COVID stopped me. COVID made me keep my distance. And as I'm hugging her and crying, I realize that this is the first time that I've embraced anyone, touched anyone in over a month and a half. I mean, I've been been completely alone at home, away from my family, at times scared shitless of what's going to happen at work. And I mean, she really needed this hug, but I also really, really needed a hug.
0: That was Amelia Reeves. Amelia is a labor and delivery nurse living in New Orleans. She was born and raised in Atlanta and moved to New Orleans in 2015 for nursing school with her two orange brother cats and has been soaking up all that the Crescent City has to offer ever since. Before we move on to our interview segment, I just want to give a quick reminder that you can catch more true personal stories about science at our online live shows. Find out more about those at storyclider.org. You can also find out more about our online storytelling workshops. We offer an intro course every single month, and in January, I will be leading an advanced workshop course alongside one of our producers, the amazing Chicago storyteller, Lily B. We're going to dig deep into these stories, and I'm super excited about it. So once again, find out more at storyclider.org. And now feels like a good time to mention that if you're listening to the series thinking that you have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a bigger small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storyclutter.org or you can pitch through the form on our website. We're currently working on our next series of COVID-19 stories, and we would love to work with you on yours. To try to understand more about how the pandemic is changing the way we make decisions, I spoke with Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, who studies the psychology of decision-making, in September. Thank you, Tess, for being with me today. Thanks for having me. So, I came across your article in The Atlantic that was titled, Our Minds Aren't Equipped for This Kind of Reopening. And I related to it very strongly. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about why making the types of decisions that our storytellers have been talking about in their stories that they've shared through the series, decisions about whether or not to visit relatives right now, decisions about whether or not to go back to work, to go out and protest, why are those decisions so hard?
2: Um, I think they're hard, both because of the sort of nature of the sort of the attributes that are going into decision making right now, so that's real the stakes. The stakes of these decisions are really high. The information inputs are super complex. And then we're also just dealing with this volume of dis- of sort of fraught decisions that we normally wouldn't have. Like, you know, should I go to the grocery store for a second time? Normally, that would be a decision that for me depends on like, how much do I like, whatever, do I really need the more eggs? Or, <laughs> you know, is is it okay to leave my... 13 year old here watching his little sister but not um not sort of am i putting my community at risk right that becomes like this now it's a moral decision and mm-hmm. and that's a much bigger deal so all these decisions that used to be sort of low stakes are now really high stakes. And we have this just volume of information that's supposed to be parsed for each decision that we couldn't possibly sort of sift through in any kind of, you know, rational way multiple times a day.
0: Yeah. And that's got to take a toll on us over time, right?
2: I, it's certainly taking a toll on me. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I think. So, I mean, so, 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 yeah. So first of all, you have just this sort of decision overload problem of, the tax on yourself um, from having to make a lot of choices, from having to sort of be um, engaged in what are relatively stressful decisions, too, right? These are not, like, every decision has some stakes, or you wouldn't be making it at all. But the, the stress of these decisions is pretty intense, because it implicates all these, like, deep, serious problems of literally life and death or, you know, or even if you sort of lighten it up a little bit, even just sort of community health questions or what does it mean to be a good citizen in these times? Um, there's also this, there's this, um, there's this idea in psychology um, of, of ego depletion. It's somewhat controversial, but I think the gist is probably resonant with most people. So ego depletion basically says when you do a really hard task, of um, where you have to sort of like use your conscious will to get through something, you kind of use up that resource and then you're left a little depleted. That's why it's called ego depletion. Hmm. Um, and and I, um, I, I certainly feel like I am having to use a lot of will to get from point A to point B in my days um, in, in sort of quarantine in a way that um, were not true you know, when when my days involved more sort of going places and seeing people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think we kind of think of that as decision fatigue. Is that
2: right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, ego depletion. The not to get into like internecine sort of <laughs> the, um, um, you know sort of uh, fights in within psychology, but it's, it's it's there's like another level to it, which is that it's not just that you have to make decisions, but you have to like actively use your will to not do something that otherwise is appealing. So, um, so the idea is like, I'm going to use a silly example because, because it's, it's just salient right right this minute. But so if I'm working from home um, and in my work from home life, I am working out of a bedroom. This this happens to be true. And, I'm kind of tired, and I'd always kind of like to just go lie on the bed, but I'm gonna, stay at my, but I make myself stay at my desk for various reasons, right? Among them is the fact that like I don't want students to see me lying in bed I don't <laughs> want them to see me teaching from a from a desk, right? Whereas at work, I don't have that temptation. there's I just don't have a bed I could lie on at work, right? And so you can think about my day at home as being one in which I have to sort of resist something that's a little bit tempting, whereas my work life, if I'm working out of my office, it's kind of structured to to sort of Provide a clean psychological space to do my work. There's not much to resist. I'm in an office. It's got a lot of books. That's it, right?
0: That makes so much sense. I feel like in this period of time, we're not really set up to be able to easily make the right decisions. Like you said, a lot of people who are, you know, trying to focus on their schoolwork or their work, work are in that position where they have to resist the television all day,
2: resist the bed all day. I think that's right. And I think that we don't um it's easy to sort of not fully appreciate what it is that our 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 days normally um contain that help them sort of ease along. Like even on a day that isn't wasn't easy that where I would have said like oh this is a, this this day was you know this was a tough day. I worked hard today there's a certain automaticity, right, where I sort of would get on, I'd wake up and get on sort of autopilot, right? Like you, you drop a kid off at school, you walk the subway, you take the subway to the same place you normally take it to, you whatever, get that or get coffee, go to class. And, and you're seeing people who are also kind of pushing you along, because you want to make sure you're on time for a meeting, because you don't want to disappoint somebody else. And a lot of these sort of touchstones of our days fall away, meaning that you have to kind of exercise a certain amount of intention and will to do things that might have otherwise sort of been force of habit.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. Is there anything that we can do about this ego depletion? (laughs) Is there any way that we can set ourselves up to make best decisions?
2: Well, um, I guess. So, yes, I mean, yes. Um, And and I'm going to maybe step back from what we ourselves can do and just say a little bit about like, what I think that um, what I think are sort of easy fixes, or or at least sort of you know the the least that institutional actors can do to help individuals out, is if you want people to make choices that are sort of socially cooperative, which is to say like you know doing the best we can to um, to end the pandemic or to flatten the curve, then make it easy, make it easy on individuals to make easy make good decisions, right? So hand out masks at the store, put stuff on. Put um, markers on the ground. Tell us how far apart six feet is. Like reduce the number of these little decisions people have to make day to day, in order to um, make the e- make the right decision, the easy decision. I, you know, a, a, an analogy um, to this would be saying like, you know, one other cl- it would be like a, another collective enterprise that we all. That we're all involved in is driving on the roads right driving on the highways and like we would just never ask people to sort of use their best judgment and just try to really be safe and think about you know where you're going and who's going to be there and how important your trip is and in order to figure out how fast to go or which side of the street to drive on right Like you try to make that stuff easy so it actually can so the whole system works um and that's that's something that can happen that's something that that can happen in the in this con in the um, pandemic context too right any amount of sort of quick and easy guidance that makes the thing simpler, faster more appealing gets you to this group result that's better for everybody
0: one of the things that you talk about in your article that I mentioned earlier was the fact that we're all dealing with these complex decisions, where we have, in many cases, limited information, is it creates the space for us to judge each other's decision making?
2: Yes. Um, yeah, and that's that's some of what I was trying to write about in the in the article that you that you mentioned, which was that um, it's. I think that everyone's sort of making their personal choices in a context that is really constrained and kind of unfair to individuals. Um, I mean, if I think about the fact, if I think about the, the question of like sending my kids um, to school or not, or how to think or how to sort of arrange my, you know, my, my um, children's sort of fall, give, it's like. I have a very few amount of – there's a, there's very few choices, right, and I'm going to make some choice within this decision set, but it also is really unfair that this is the position I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of – I mean in the sense that like a whole bunch of political choices could have been made way outside of my – my, my ken rather – that would have set us up for a different experience. But now here I am having to choose, you know, different ways of like how much sort of how much my kids might be able to be exposed to other, other children, et cetera. And I think it's really easy to judge other people or to sort of um, engage in like sort of a social distance shaming, right? Like those people eating there, eating at a restaurant, et cetera. And look, basically, I do think, yeah, everyone should definitely wear a mask mm-hmm. and you probably shouldn't eat indoors at restaurants. But I also think, you know, if restaurants are open, is it really right to blame the people who are going to them? Mm. That strikes me as being a failure of leadership. It also strikes me as the kind of thing that you that you that's easy for individuals to observe, right? You can see as if you walk around your neighborhood, you might see people you know, being close together in a way that you think is unsafe. And so it's really salient, right? You notice it. Mm. Whereas I can't, I live in Pennsylvania. I can't see what's happening in Harrisburg. That's the capital of Pennsylvania, right? What what, What state legislatures are doing is not particularly salient to me. So I have a sense that things could be better here and there, but I don't have any particularly sort of granular way of, of, um, of assigning blame, it's not particularly—it's it's not particularly obvious to me what little decisions would go, you know, should bother me. The way that these little um, things on the ground might sort of arouse my arouse my, you know, instinct for um, judgment.
0: So, uh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this last question. I think I'm kind of interested to know what are the sort of biases. Uh, ways of processing information that our brain has that we can be aware of when it comes to this kind of complex decision-making.
2: That's really interesting. Um, So the certain kinds of information um, are really salient, more salient than others. And so salient in this context means like attention grabbing, like your attention naturally goes to that thing. So one of the kinds of information that's really salient is information that's scary. Um, so, um, in the COVID context, I think that in risk information about your own risk and the risk of people you love is super. That's right. That's that's really scary, scary and salient information. Um, every story you hear about um, about people who have Serious consequences, right? That that real uh, of of the disease, um, or even fatalities, right? These these take up a lot of uh, mental and emotional space. And listen, as they should, right? This is a really serious. We are in a serious moment in which just it's outrageous that we have that we are living in a world in which this many Americans have been sickened and died. At the at the individual decision making level it is helpful to be able to ask whether we're assessing risk in a way that is sort of like, is this how you would assess risk if you were, th- if you were describe if you were trying to sort of advise somebody else or is, or are you um, largely thinking about the sort of highly salient risks to you, right? Um, things that are taking up more space than you wish that they would in your sort of decision process. I mean, there's all kinds of re- reasons that, that different kinds of pieces of information will be salient aside from them being scary. It could also be because you really want that information to be true or because you knew somebody who had a particular experience, even that if that experience was really idiosyncratic or unusual. Mm. Um, so I think the one way to sort of help navigate these tough decisions is to maybe try to try to parse piece them out a bit right try to think about what is the actual risk of the thing I'm thinking about or what are my actual goals here what are the real trade-offs as opposed to having it sort of all be bound up in one um sort of a you know white hot ball of stress um in which (laughs) um right just try to see if you can take it apart a little bit Mm -hmm. I realize it's super hard and I'm not and I don't know that that I'm that I'm that I'm able to do this either.
0: <laughs> I feel like every question related to anything to do with the pandemic <laughs> kind of ends up no, absolutely. In that I mean, I, I
2: I I absolutely know. I mean, um, I think this has been um, like we're all just in these positions that are just, that are out that are so unusual, and where the sort of usual modes of Cost benefit sort of trade off analysis. It's not just that we have all, I mean, it's not just that we have all this information, right? It's also that we lack all this information. Like we're making these high stakes decisions where the outcomes really matter with actually a real dearth of information that seems to me, it's kind of wild to me that we don't have it. Like I was, I went to the grocery store myself this morning and I thought to myself, at this point, shouldn't we know whether or not there's a lot of transmission at grocery stores? Like we've had all this time to learn. Could some like? <laughs> is, shouldn't we have? It seems wild to me that I'm still asking the question about how dangerous the grocery store is. That seems like an answerable question, and that's just one of the you know, one of the many places I would <laughs> that I would like to go in my day. Including, I'd like to go back to you know, I'd like to go to work. I mean, I'm going in to teach a, to teach in person next week um, to teach students, and it's a um, it, it's it's pretty wild to me to think about the making these really important decisions and not being able to fill in like most of the variables in my equation.
0: Yeah. We're all to varying
2: degrees sort of flying blind right now. And it's, and that's really, um, that's, that's a real indictment of, um, of, of institutions. That's, we've had tons of time to get some of this information. So that that's one of the that's sort of one of my like, you know, focus your energy on, on institutional actors concerns is like, why don't we have this information?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good question for sure. Thank you so much, Tess, for talking with us today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: The Story Collider is so grateful to Tess for sharing her knowledge and to Amelia for sharing her story. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our new interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by Emma Yarbrough. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Stay tuned for two more stories in part two of this episode on Monday. Until then, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other,